1: During the pandemic, I've become fascinated by this particular genre of ads.
0: Hey friends, are you overwhelmed by 24-7 time with the kids?
1: Ads like this one with swimmer Michael Phelps that acknowledge how hard life can be right now.
0: Or perhaps you feel all alone.
1: And it makes me want to reply and say, yeah, Michael Phelps,
0: sometimes I do feel overwhelmed. We're not just living through the COVID-19 pandemic. We're also living through an unprecedented mental health crisis. Now might be the time to talk to a licensed therapist.
1: Phelps is a spokesman for Talkspace, a mental health app that provides audio, video, and text therapy. Talkspace is just one of these apps. BetterHelp is another. There are a lot of them. And once you notice one therapy app ad, they're suddenly everywhere.
0: The one that, for me, like... It has lodged in my brain and I now feel like every time I hear it, I'm like, oh my God, this is so bad is the one that plays nonstop on the daily that's like, mental health is finally cool. That's Molly Fisher. She writes for The Cut
1: at New York Magazine.
0: But therapy doesn't just have to be talking about feelings. Therapy can be whatever you want it to be. And it just seems so nakedly like, no. No, it can't. What responsible provider would ever tell you that therapy can be whatever you want it to be? Like, I wouldn't go to a dermatologist that said skincare can be whatever you want it to be. Like, that's just not how care works.
1: But it is how therapy apps work. Molly wrote about these apps and what they promise customers. They offer a new kind of mental health care cheaper, more accessible. Something you can do without leaving your house or even putting down your phone. But is that a good thing?
0: Call me naive, but I wouldn't look at the way healthcare tends to work in America now and say that, like, the solution would be to bring more business into the situation, <laughs> like to create more layers of middlemen who are trying to turn a profit based on people's need for care.
1: Today on the show, the world of therapy apps. Business is booming, but who are these apps really helping? I'm Lizzie O'Leary, and you're listening to What Next TBD, a show about technology, power, and how the future will be determined. Stick with us. Variable APRs for AppleCard range from 19.24% to 29.49% based on creditworthiness. Rates as of February 1st, 2024. Terms and more at AppleCard.com. Let's talk about therapy in general for a second, because there's broad agreement among clinicians and researchers that it works. And even though there are different forms and approaches one thing that's foundational to successful therapy is a good working relationship between therapist and patient.
0: It's not just about how well you click with the other person. Like, do you like your therapist's jokes or do you think she seems cool or whatever? Like, it's not it's not just that. It's also this kind of shared sense of purpose and a sense that you are working together toward a common goal and that you share an understanding of how you're going to reach that goal so even in kinds of therapy that maybe don't seem like they're as much about talking about feelings as the t- the BetterHelp ad would have it, you know, they still do require that the client and the therapist have that kind of mutual understanding and trust in order to work together successfully.
1: I'm thinking back to my own experiences with therapy and specifically kind of getting help for depression in my late 20s and early 30s. And it was really hard to do that time period of trying to find a therapist, figuring out, will they take your insurance? Well, if not, will your insurance reimburse you? It's awful. Yeah, it's awful. The hoop jumping is very difficult. How do the majority of Americans who seek out mental health care, how do
0: they do it? Well, I mean, I think the experiences that you're describing are pretty representative. I think it's really tough to seek out mental health care. I mean, I think you're you're not in a therapist desert. That's good. And you probably are also, I'm guessing, as someone who works in media, not someone who is necessarily in a milieu where seeing a therapist is super stigmatized. But I think for plenty of people, there is a real stigma around seeking therapy. So even before you get to the point of trying to figure out who's going to take your insurance, you might have uh, a real hesitation about whether it's going to be okay to be seen walking into someone's office or whether Hmm. you'd be comfortable telling your spouse that you're spending money to see a therapist. Like, there are a lot of very real hurdles that are out in front of people. And even if you're just dealing with trying to find someone who you like and you can afford and who, like, can fit you into their schedule and, you know, where do you start getting names in the first place? Are you going through your insurance? Are you reconciling yourself to paying out-of-pocket so you're just trying to figure out if someone will have a sliding scale for costs so they might be able to charge you less and be more affordable. It's a real pain in the ass. When
1: I looked at your piece, I was really struck by a number of things, but including the fact that 33% of counties have no records of licensed psychologists. So it seems it seems so ripe for some kind of transformative thing and and to use the overused disruption the silicon valley word like apps make sense it seems like there is a a hole to fill how did
0: these apps first come on the market and and how were they received well i think you're right that you know there's just a an insurmountable shortage like there's just not enough therapists for people who need therapy you know that's not mm-hmm. one-on-one care in the way we're used to understanding it is not a viable solution for the need that exists now. So it is absolutely very ripe for someone to come in and try to figure out an alternative model that might make care more accessible on a wider scale.
1: Enter therapy apps. Talkspace, probably the best known one, started in 2012. Then you've got BetterHelp, Ginger, Lyra, and more. Some of them are marketed to consumers, some to employers. And full disclosure here, Talkspace and BetterHelp are both Slate advertisers. The idea behind most of these apps is to take the basic concept of talk therapy and offer it at scale. That means leaning hard into technology.
0: The backbone of what they're selling is text therapy. For BetterHelp and Talkspace, texting is sort of the central offering. And texting, it seems like, is central to how they're imagining that they will be able to make therapy more scalable. Like if, if a therapist is texting, you know, they're not having to sit in a room for an hour with a patient. And so theoretically, maybe they can be seeing more patients. Maybe it will make what they're doing more efficient somehow. Oh, wow. Yeah. But the thing about texting that's also important to note is that texting really isn't very substantiated from a research standpoint right now as therapy. I think a lot of people who focus on this stuff who are academics, like, are very open to the idea that therapy via text could work. Um, But we don't know really who it works for at this point. We don't know in what kinds of circumstances it works. We don't know what the best practices are for delivering it. Like, that stuff is all kind of an open question.
1: It seems so key, though, because, I mean, even in daily life, I find texting fraught, even when it's with someone I know and love, there are so many potential pitfalls for miscommunication and misunderstanding.
0: I mean, yeah, and I think, like, the experience of waiting for a response to an emotionally loaded text is not a fun one, so I'm not sure. (laughs) You know, I think when you think about what you're seeking via therapy in those terms, it feels not very appealing. But when you think about what you're seeking from therapy in terms of convenience and speed and privacy and instant accessibility, that's when texting does come to seem appealing to consumers. And I think crucially what texting does for these services is allow them to present a fantasy of constant access. Um, A lot of therapists Mm. I spoke to who have worked with these services were complaining and describing the ads that run constantly for them, where very often you'll see someone sending a message to their therapist you know, saying like, I'm having a bad day or like, I'm not feeling so good or I'm really anxious right now. And you instantly three dots appear and the therapist is texting back saying, what's on your mind? How was your day? Tell me about it. And all of these therapists who like outlined this ad to me were like, that's not how it works. Therapists on
1: these platforms told Molly they were only expected to respond to messages during the work week. At least one message per day. And that might be a lot less than
0: their clients were expecting. So right from the beginning, there's a divide between what they're actually offering and what they are selling. And I think that's the source of a lot of the frustration with the service that users experience and that therapists who are trying to work on the services also experience.
1: When you talk to users who signed up for these apps and were hopeful that they would get some sort of strong therapeutic relationship from it, um, what did they say about their experiences?
0: I mean, it really runs a gamut. And I should say that, you know, some people do get lucky and some people find someone who they click with and it works for them. But I think there is a whole lot of room for the apps to fall pretty drastically short of that. Um, I remember one woman I spoke to describing how initially she was super excited and she was like, you know, it felt like a dating app. Like all of a sudden I had all these names right in front of me. I'd been having trouble finding a therapist and here they were in the palm of my hand. And it went from initially, you know, being matched with all these therapists, being excited about the possibilities to then slowly realizing that the first therapist she matched with Maybe she wasn't quite a personality fit. It felt like they weren't quite clicking the way she had hoped. Deciding to switch, that therapist never responding to her, trying to switch again. Getting a fourth therapist after going to customer service. The fourth therapist assuring her that, you know, there shouldn't be any gaps in their communication. She checked her messages even on her off days. And then disappearing (laughs) before they could schedule an appointment. You know, it, it wound up going from being just like a dating app in the good way to being just like a dating app in the bad way, where you end up feeling like you're just getting ghosted and disconnected from people.
1: Yeah, you talk to therapists who have worked for these apps and i'm I'm curious how they experience them. Do they find it professionally satisfying?
0: Do they feel like they can connect with patients? Well, I think that their ability to connect with patients is really hindered by the business setup that they're dealing with because they're being asked to essentially take on a a huge volume of work at much lower pay than what they would be making off of Hmm. an app. So these apps, I think, tend to appeal to therapists who are in transition for some reason, you know, they're moving, their partner had to go to grad school. So they're following along with them. They're needing to work part-time while they deal with childcare. They're moving from an institutional job to restarting a private practice. And so the apps kind of serve as a stopgap measure while they're Hmm. dealing with that. But almost everyone I spoke to was pretty clear that this didn't feel like a career choice that was sustainable in the long term. Like the numbers just didn't work out when you're making a fraction of what you would otherwise make. And you're also expected by your patients to be on call continuously.
1: Therapists told Molly that they were making roughly $30 for a session on BetterHelp. If they were in private practice or being paid by insurance, that might range between $70 and $250, depending on where they work. With the apps, they also spent a lot of time managing clients' expectations.
0: I think the therapists do feel like they have to do a lot of work that the companies have chosen not to do in terms Hmm. of setting boundaries with their clients, you know, conveying to them when they are and aren't going to be available, and that often clients are upset because they've paid a lot of money for something that was sold to them as a therapist whenever you want. Right, like some $250 a month. Or even more. I mean, a, a Talkspace plan that includes a video visit once a week would cost almost $400. Wow. So
1: it's not That's cheap. That's getting up there with with in-person therapy.
0: Exactly. And the difference is just that the therapist themselves is seeing a much smaller portion of that. The company itself is, of course, taking its cut. And so that's what you're paying for.
1: When we come back, when the need for care doesn't match what's on offer, When we introduce the pandemic into this kind of desperate sense of need for help or connection or the good therapy date, it feels like the stakes get significantly higher. I noticed that Talkspace said 60% of its users are in therapy for the first time. And it, it made me wonder a couple of things, like, Are these apps opening up therapy to a world of people who hadn't had access? Or are we just in such a desperate place right now as a country that people are reaching out for whatever they can get?
0: I think several things can be true at once here and probably are. So I think you're right that people who might have felt for whatever reason they couldn't reach out for therapy before are reaching out now. And that there's a much greater need also now that's emerging amid the pandemic that people are suffering from mental illness and substance abuse issues at much higher rates, according to the CDC, than they were previously. But another thing that the pandemic did, um, and I can attest to this from my own experience at work, is create a need for employers to be able to say, we're looking out for our employees' mental health. Like, they really want to be able to say, like, you know, we're taking care of our people. Yes, this is such a hard year, but, like, we understand you're stressed out, but Instead of maybe doing something to address the root causes of stress that might have to do with your job, we're going to give you an app. Like, this is going to be part of your benefits package now. So that became kind of a a Band-Aid even for the um, businesses who are another customer for these services.
1: Another issue is what you might call the question of mismatched need. It's hard to get demographics on exactly who uses therapy apps. But overall... More white people seek mental health treatment in the U.S. than Black and Latino people, according to CDC data. And therapists in the U.S. are overwhelmingly white. One app, Ayana, targets people of color, but most therapy apps are trying to deliver mental health care at scale, and who they provide it to may not be the people who need it
0: most. It's important to zoom out from the people who are in fact, using a service like Talkspace, the wider pool of people who might need mental health help at all. And disproportionately, the people who have seen the greatest increases in mental illness in substance abuse issues in problems that could be treated with mental health care in the last year have been people of color. They've been essential workers. They've been unpaid caregivers. They've been all kinds of people who are maybe dealing with access and equity issues to begin with. And people who design apps tend to design apps for people like themselves. And very often the people who are designing the apps are not the people with the greatest needs. So you get a therapy app that maybe eliminates the annoying phone calls that find a therapist who takes your insurance, but you don't get an app that helps you get the mental health support you need if you are a single mom working two jobs.
1: I saw an interesting note from the APA, the American Psychological Association, and an idea that they were putting forward seemed to be that apps were like a gateway drug toward therapy, that they were leading people toward more traditional talk therapy, not replacing it. Do you think that's accurate? Because that doesn't seem to be the way the companies are selling it.
0: I don't think that's the way the companies are selling it. No, they would prefer to have people, I think, within their app ecosystem where they can continue to be customers. I do think that there are a number of people who hope that the apps can help people maybe get their feet wet with therapy who might've been hesitant about it before. This is what the um, psychologist and tech commentator, Sherry Turkle, talks in her work about how often tech solutions to human problems like therapy will start out as being described as better than nothing. Like, oh, well, at least you have a text therapist. It's better than nothing. You know, this is a sort of a stopgap measure. It's fine for now. It's better than not having a therapist at all. But after having been introduced as better than nothing, they gradually come to be seen as better than anything because maybe all of the alternatives have been eliminated or maybe people have kind of idealized the tech or maybe people have decided that they don't want to deal with the bother of the human interaction that came before the tech. And so you're potentially left with a kind of impoverished landscape.
1: You're bringing me to the money because some of the numbers in your story were pretty astounding that the sort of digital behavioral health space raised $1.8 billion in venture capital last year, and that's compared to $609 million in 2019. Clearly, investors are looking at this and saying, there is money to be made here. And it it's a very strange thing to think of therapy as a product, even though it is something that millions of people have paid for for years.
0: Yeah. I mean, I think it, it is strange and discomforting to think of it in those terms. I think that it comes back to a lot of what's weird and maybe dysfunctional about our healthcare system overall in America. It's a reminder that therapy as an institution, the way we understand it, hasn't been around that long. Like the 19th century, like there was no idea of professional psychotherapy in any kind of widespread way as we hold it in our heads now. Like then it was, you know, people looking to A phrenologist or looking for like some kind of weird tonic or rescue or whatever. But like all of the inchoate ills that we now categorize as, you know, something that a therapist might address could be understood in a totally different marketplace as something where you could buy and sell all kinds of different solutions that are totally different from what we imagine now. So in some ways, Hmm. even as it's a little weird and creepy to think about therapy as a big business, it's not something that's ever been absent from the way people think about mental health. Are, are therapy apps, I guess, really therapy? And does, does it even matter if they are? I think that's a great question, because in some ways, I guess the question shouldn't be, is it therapy, but is it therapeutic? And I think, if anything, the problem with a lot of these apps seems to be that they're trying to funnel our expectations of in-person therapy into a format that doesn't really make sense. Like, Hmm. you're not going to be able to do talk therapy via text message very successfully in a lot of cases. But there are probably other things you could do with text messages that might be more useful, that might be more meaningful. So it probably would be smarter for us to stop thinking about how we can better funnel therapy into an app and start thinking about how we can make care that makes a difference more accessible to more people.
1: Molly Fisher, thank you very much. Thank you very much. This has been fun. Molly Fisher is a features writer at The Cut. That's the show. TBD is produced by Ethan Brooks and edited by Allison Benedict and Tori Bosch. Alicia Montgomery is the executive producer for Slate Podcasts. TBD is part of the larger What Next family, and TBD is also part of Future Tense, a partnership of Slate, Arizona State University, and New America. And if you've been wondering what exactly is going on with COVID in Michigan, do yourself a favor, check out Wednesday's episode of What Next. It answered a lot of my questions. All right, what next? We'll be back on Monday. Have a lovely weekend. I'm Lizzie O'Leary. Thanks for listening.